Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. We are your hosts, Antoine Fougère-Ramsmouge and Marie Asensio. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. The war in Ukraine has fundamentally changed the way in which we think of numerous issues in public life and international relations, from refugees to food security to nuclear escalation. However, one of the topics that has received considerable attention in the last year has been the relationship between fossil fuels, clean energy, and global security. Since the war began, the world has seen skyrocketing energy prices, introspection on the sources of fossil fuel energy, and anxieties over the future of energy stability. This has led scholars, politicians, and experts to argue for a stronger link between the pursuit of clean energy and global security. This episode will aim to address the bigger questions of this debate and their implications for Canada and the world. Through a conversation with Mark Winfield from York University's Faculty of Environment and Urban Change, the first segment of the episode will discuss the effects of the war in Ukraine on the discourse surrounding energy transition and Canada's role as a global energy exporter. In the second segment, we have a discussion with Scott McKnight from the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. This segment puts emphasis on the global trends in green energy transition in the wake of the conflict, with particular emphasis on how these issues affect China and the global south. Our last segment will be conducted by my colleague, Marie Asensio, who is in discussion with European Climate Pact Ambassador Khlib Michno regarding Ukraine's approach to the energy transition in wartime and moving forward with reconstruction in light of the environmental consequences of Russia's assault. Mark Winfield is a professor at the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University, co-chair of the faculty's Sustainable Energy Initiative, coordinator of the Master of Environmental Studies program, and member of the York University Senate. He has published several articles, book chapters, and reports on a wide range of climate change, environment, and energy law and policy topics. He has acted as an advisor to the Environmental Commissioner of Ontario and Federal Commissioner for Environment and Development. From 2017 to 2020, he was a member of the Board of Directors of Transition Énergétique Québec, a crown corporation established to implement a low-carbon energy transition strategy for the province. Hello, Professor Winfield. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I think a, a good place to start would be at the very onset of the invasion of Ukraine uh, last year in 2022. Uh, several notable scholars uh, characterized the conflict as a quote-unquote hydrocarbon war, arguing that Russia's ability to fund the conflict using its status as a global energy exporter was a reason to begin the conflict and also a main reason for its continuation. To what extent do you believe this characterization to be accurate? Um, I would say partially. I don't think that was actually a motive for the war per se. The motive seemed to lie elsewhere, I think, uh, fundamentally around Mr. Putin's desire to reassemble the Soviet Union. You know, that Russia does not need hydrocarbons. It was a hydrocarbon exporter. But certainly its role as a hydrocarbon exporter and more specifically an oil exporter 
uh, has become a crucial enabling component uh, for Russia. I mean, it is it is the ability to export hydrocarbons and generate uh, revenue by doing that, that which enables Russia to sustain the war, even without uh, with the loss of, of natural gas exports to Europe and also now the loss of the European market for Russian oil as well. And would you say that Russia has been able to transition, shall I say, smoothly uh, due to the pretty rapid uh, decoupling from Europe specifically uh, to Russian oil and natural gas? And if so, is there any indication that this smooth transition uh, will continue for Russia? Um, it's a complicated question. I mean, the, the transition was was somewhat more bumpy. I think the Russians were taken aback uh, initially mm-hmm. by the European response. I don't think they expected that. Um, I think they may have thought that the Europeans were so dependent on them for natural gas that, that the response you saw was not possible. Where it where it goes from here is is more complicated in the sense the Europeans have been very clear now in their transitional strategy that there's a relatively short term drive to bring in particularly liquid natural gas. And that was to get through this past winter and perhaps the coming winter as well. But the Europeans have very definitely doubled down on their strategies around decarbonization, you know, very, very central connections now being made between the shift away from fossil fuels and energy security, as well as the the original climate change and environmental rationales. On the Russian side, um, they have been remarkably successful in in shifting. The natural gas isn't really going anywhere, but the oil definitely is um, and have been remarkably successful um, at at transferring principally to China and India as their primary markets. And indeed, there has been, you know, from a technocratic perspective, the Russian Central Bank has demonstrated considerable skill in in managing this, even with hundreds of billions of dollars of Russian assets frozen outside of out of Russia. They've done a up to this point, a, a remarkably good job in many ways of, of managing uh, the impact of the war from an internal perspective within Russia. And that is one of the factors which is sustaining the war. And indeed, again, it is the revenue flow from the sale of oil principally to Russia, to, sorry, to China and India, which is which is enabling that, that to, to work. I mean, that is what is sustaining the Russian economy now. Thank you for that opening breakdown. But going in more in depth now, how has the war in Ukraine shifted the narratives surrounding the green energy transition and decarbonization? You know, are we starting to see an intersection between issues that have previously been kept separate in public politics? such as green energy and national security. And then lastly, you know, how is this different, say, in Europe, as opposed to in Canada or the United States? That's a complicated one and may require a long answer, because the answers in in Europe and Canada especially are quite different. Um, there is no question that there have been um a renewed connection made between energy security and fossil fuels in ways that wasn't there before, at least we we had not been conscious of for, for half a century or more. How that how that's seen in different locations, I think, varies. I mean, 
within Europe, the the connection was realized, there's sort of a realization very quickly, remarkably quickly, that the strategy they thought they had been pursuing with Russia, which is one of economic integration and, and effectively mutually assured economic destruction, if, if somebody went down precisely the path that Russia took, proved, proved to be an incorrect set of assumptions. And in, in Europe, um, it has precisely reconnected the questions of effectively climate change and especially the role of fossil fuels to national security in a very direct and, and unavoidable kind of sense. So you see in the European Union documents, there is there is effectively a doubling down on the move towards decarbonization and especially around renewables and energy efficiency. I mean, they've also taken the view that we don't want to just substitute one geopolitically threatening supply of energy for another or a geopolitically risky source of energy for another. In the short term, yes, we will vacuum up every molecule of liquid natural gas we can get in the next year or two. But in the longer term, uh, this means the energy transition, which we were doing for climate change purposes, also is now centrally linked to questions of national security. So for Europe, it's not a terrible thing from a climate perspective. Globally, of course, it's it's a very, very different picture. And, and I mean, wars are generally bad for the environment. And, and I fear more broadly outside of Europe, uh, the climate agenda is is a very significant loser in this this process. In Canada's case, indeed, Canada then becomes kind of the, the example of, of that, because what's happened to us is that we are being seen as a geopolitically stable and reliable provider of primary commodities, principally natural gas, potentially oil to some degree, a great deal of tension also on critical minerals, as they referred to. We had Versa underlined here just this week asking about our rocks. And indeed, we've had Chancellor Schultz as well. Um, that's been a very clear message from the Europeans. So for Canada, it's been quite different. And, and to some degree, there has been a, a pushing aside, I would argue, of the climate agenda and the energy transitions agenda in favor of our role as a reliable uh, energy commodity exporter, a staples provider, is the, the role that we have effectively, well, I wouldn't say we are being asked to play, but if you look at um, the statements of Minister Freeland and, and others, I mean, it seems to be one that we're embracing with, with great enthusiasm. So it's a very different dynamic in Canada relative to this conversation within Europe. Going further into the implications for Canada then, uh, specifically, what are those implications for the country using its status as a net energy exporter? Could Canadian access to energy allow Canada to bolster its status on the world stage uh, regarding energy provision, international trade, and global security? And, you know, you mentioned that uh, Canada seems to be willing to pursue such a policy, but uh, do we have any idea to what extent they would want to pursue such a policy? Well, this is this is a good question. At the moment, you know, we're not really pursuing a strategy of of geopolitical stature and power. I would argue, in some ways, I mean, we we are being a fairly vocal ally of Ukraine. 
I don't know what role we're, I assume within NATO, we are probably a fairly significant voice in, in those conversations. But it, it's not clear at this stage what role Canada sees for itself coming out of this other than an expansion of exports of, of resource commodities. And the two things that are getting a lot of attention at the moment are liquid natural gas, uh, principally from British Columbia, because at the moment there is, there is, of course, no significant way of moving natural gas from inside Canada to, to, to Tidewater, except through the United States. I mean, it all goes through the down to the to the Gulf Coast at the moment. So this has produced pressures, you know, sort of revived, particularly the liquid natural gas projects in British Columbia, which again, no particular immediate help to Europe. But there is some notion that as markets may tighten and are disrupted, there will be markets in Asia and other places. So that's one dimension. And that's that's and the problem, of course, is LNG is a very, very carbon-intense commodity export. It takes a lot of energy to cool natural gas down to minus 240 degrees or lower uh, to liquefy it. That's very close, again, close to absolute zero. So from a carbon perspective, this is decidedly unhelpful and, and a question in which Canada seems to have no answers, doesn't even want to ask. And then the other dimension that seems to be getting a lot of attention is this question of critical minerals. And as I say, we've had a parade of, of European leaders through looking to secure supplies of, of critical minerals. And again, being open, welcomed with open arms by, by Canadian governments. Again, with, I'm not sure, a whole lot of thought in terms of what the environmental costs will be, how those will affect Indigenous peoples, or really, you know, do we see ourselves as, as a geopolitically powerful provider of these commodities and it doesn't seem so and indeed that's not been our history i mean i'm we've been a a country of staples exporters in a in a sort of quasi colonial kind of sense and in some ways what we're seeing is is a is a doubling down on on that history of of being the resource commodity provider there's some notions we may take up some manufacturing activities as well but it it is a very strong element of back to the future for canada like you know pre you know world war ii probably even further back than that in many ways in terms of the role that canada seems to be being cast in the world stage and what are these ten what are the tensions between canada's potential as a fossil fuel energy exporter, as some of the rhetoric, you know, would suggest that we would want to expand our our role, our global presence in that. And, you know, what are the tensions between that and the country's goals regarding climate change and regarding net zero and renewable energies? To what extent are those tensions incompatible with each other? And if it's possible, you know, what would be a way to begin reconciling these tensions? Well, I think I think there are definite tensions. I mean, particularly, you know, that's particularly apparent around liquid natural gas, as I've mentioned, you know, a very, very carbon intensive way of uh, producing natural gas. Well, it's, it's really the sort of preparation for transportation is is very energy intensive. The upstream emissions, particularly from methane leakage, are are an ongoing issue and around which there are very significant debates about how much 
methane is released through the fracking processes and other things. But certainly the numbers that are being presented around the implications for British Columbia, reinforced by the fact that that we've had the major developers admitting, at least in the short term, the energy uh, that would be used for the purposes of uh, cooling and liquefying the natural gas would be fossil fuel powered, not electricity from site C. So there is there is a fairly profound contradiction there. There's no other way to put it that that we're on a track. On the one hand, we're notionally committed to minus 30 by 2030 and net zero by 2050. And at the same time, seem to be on a track which which uh, reinforces relatively carbon intensive energy exports, both the fact they're fossil fuels, but also very carbon intensive ways of producing them. So there's there's a very definite conflict there. The critical minerals thing is complicated as well. There does not seem to have been a whole lot of thinking through, for example, in the context of the Ring of Fire in Ontario, for example, which gets a lot of attention in these conversations, but more generally. These deposits happen in the Boreal, Hudson's Bay Lowlands, which are which are global scale carbon storage and, and sequestration sites, principally in the peat. That if you start to pursue major industrial developments in those areas, uh, you're again going to release an awful lot of methane into the atmosphere. I mean, depending on what you do, but there's a very significant risk that way. And at the moment, that just seems to be overlooked. So, you know, it doesn't, the situation doesn't present, because Canada's a net energy exporter, it's not seen as presenting an energy security problem for Canada. Our role is as an energy security provider, or at least that's the role that's being seen, because we wouldn't use whatever leverage we get from our control of these resources for unfriendly purposes in the way that we've seen others use. I mean, that's part of the attraction we're very stable. But it's it is potentially very problematic. It's not clear. I mean, the federal government is nominally committed to the phase out of coal-fired electricity. It's nominally committed to electrifying transport. Although the electricity one is more firm, I think, at this stage. But how you reconcile this ex- enormous expansion potentially of Canada's role as a resource commodity exporter with the sorts of commitments we've been making on climate change is is not at all clear to me at all. And the government doesn't seem to have, the federal government doesn't seem to have any specific answers, doesn't want to ask. And even British Columbia doesn't have particularly great answers on the LNG thing, even though it's notionally uh, or and indeed has been a relative leader on climate policy at the provincial level. So, so that's where we're at. I mean, it's it's not a particularly good. I mean, the the war has. I don't think we admit it to ourselves. Uh, the extent to which the war has had an enormous disruptive effect on our own efforts at decarbonization, and our response to say is quite different from the Europeans because they see a very direct security link between decarbonization and energy security and national security in ways that we just don't. Yeah, absolutely. And this might be a cynical follow-up question to ask, but I think uh, the quiet part needs to be said out loud. Do you see the potential for the war in Ukraine being used as a convenient excuse to not hit certain energy transition milestones? I think I think that's happening already. And you can sort of, although the federal government is unwilling to admit it at this stage, it's it's an obvious possibility. 
it's difficult to see how you can expand your role into being a major LNG exporter in a very fossil intensive way and reconcile that with where we say we need to get the oil and gas sector to for example so yeah i think i think that's um that question is out there the europeans have been more upfront about much of this in the sense that they're yes we're extending the life on coal plants yes we're vacuuming up every molecule of liquid natural gas we can lay our hands on but emphasize this is a very very short term transitional war emergency approach and that they've not lost sight of the ball in terms of the the longer term bigger picture and in, in a sense it has reinforced that conversation in a european context that things we were doing for climate policy are also now clearly matters of national security and they're very very clear about that i think that brings us nicely to our closing question uh, which is really what would you say are the most significant opportunities and also challenges and hurdles for Canada um, in a world that takes greater consideration regarding where energy comes from, how it's produced, um, and what access to energy means? For Canada, the challenge is that the the short-term economic opportunity is seen to be enormous in all the wrong ways. Now, how much of a real opportunity is, uh, I think, by the time significant liquid natural gas export infrastructure, for example, is built, the immediate crisis in Europe will have passed and and the Europeans may well be well on their way in terms of getting back to their decarbonization agenda and accelerating it. So it's not clear how much of these opportunities are real and how much are not, it would probably make sense to focus on the lower carbon dimensions of this there. But whether it really makes sense to try and make hydrogen in Canada and ship it to Europe when the Europeans are mostly perfectly capable of making green hydrogen themselves, I'm, I'm not so sure. And the critical minerals thing presents just a myriad of problems, not the least of which being, you know, there will have to be conversations with indigenous people. And that's, there is this, these complicated conversations that are happening about supply chains, particularly for electric vehicles. And where we fit into that is is an interesting set of questions. How much do we really want to help Volkswagen if they're not making Volkswagens in Canada? For example, I mean, there is a geopolitical interest that would need to back into play, but we need to think about where both looking to our own pathways, but also where do we have advantages around some of these things. Professor Winfield, thank you so much for helping myself and our listeners grapple with the various implications that the war in Ukraine has for Canada's energy sector. Um, and thanks again for joining us. Well, great. You. Thank you. Thank you very much. Once again, that was Professor Winfield from York's University, Faculty of Environment and Urban Change. Thank you for tuning in to Beyond the Headlines. Don't forget you can join us in the conversation by sending us a tweet at beyond underscore headlines. That is B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyond the headlines. And please make sure to check our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net. Our next guest is Professor Scott McKnight from the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, who will guide us on the global trends of green energy transition. Scott McKnight is a research associate in the Innovation Policy Lab and professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. 
His specialty is in energy innovation and geopolitics, particularly on the relations between national oil companies and their home states. He speaks five languages and has conducted fieldwork in Brazil, China, Ecuador, and Mexico. He is the founder and contributor of energyandpolitics.com, a website providing analysis on various current and historical issues on the political economy of oil. Good morning, Professor McKnight. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Uh, absolutely. So to get us started, the International Energy Agency stated that one year into Russia's war in Ukraine, we have witnessed the first quote-unquote, truly global energy crisis with, quote-unquote, profound impacts that will reverberate over the decades to come. What exactly were those impacts, and why does the International Energy Agency emphasize that they will last for years to come? Yeah, this has been a very, very busy year in uh, global energy markets and oil and gas in particular. Of course, the Russia's, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, in February 2022 was hugely disruptive. Um, but it is also coming on the backs of that three-year pandemic. Are we past it? I'm not sure. There has been an enormous amount of disruption in the global energy markets over the past three years from, of course, the big price collapse in early 2020 when we were all stuck at home and not traveling anywhere and the oil industry in particular couldn't adapt to that and then now with the very rapid post post pandemic economic recovery the oil industry couldn't adapt to that either and now we've seen it's also struggling to adapt to the uh, invasion of ukraine so i think we should step back one second and just say how actually kind of mind-bogglingly big the global energy market is and oil in particular. We as a species are consuming now about 100 million barrels a day in oil and various products. Just thinking of 100 million barrels a day that needs to get extracted, that needs to get refined and transported and ultimately sold to you and I for final uses. This market is very, very big. What we've now seen with the uh, invasion of Ukraine is a large reshuffling of that relationships, those traditional relationships between producers, the big exporters, and the buyers, the big consumers of that oil. Now, as we've tried to all punish the Putin regime and to, to kind of try to deprive it of revenue that is really in many ways paying for this war, you've seen a shuffling of where and who buys Russian oil. Now, most dominantly, the big trends have been this. Uh, Russian oil is very limited going to now Western countries. Western countries have very much tried to, uh, to ban this, to punish Russia, but Russian oil is still getting into the global market. It's going into countries, especially like Turkey. India has become a huge buyer of Russian oil and China, of course, is another one. And they're buying big discounts. These countries are uh, very oil dependent. A lot of their import bills are spent on oil. And therefore, these discounts are very appealing on a political or geopolitical side. These governments, whether it's the Chinese or the Indians or the Turks, are not terribly interested necessarily in what's going on with Ukraine. They're not sharing that big moral outrage that many Western countries are having. Now you're saying, well, Scott, if the Russians are no longer really selling their energy to Europe, uh, or whether it's Europe doesn't want to buy Russian energy, both are at play here. Where is Europe getting its energy? And now we have another part of that story, the reshuffling, which is 
actually North American and American in particular selling liquefied natural gas to Europe. You, the United States has emerged all of a sudden as this massive LNG exporter. And a lot of that is going to, to European homes and to stoves and to industries in Europe. This big reshuffling has taken place that really we haven't seen in the global energy market before. This is a, a very interesting time. That's very interesting. And it's really fascinating to see how a few, uh, as you said, it's not just the war in Ukraine, it was the pandemic before, a few acute events or moments really have a profound impact. And it's, it's really the, it's the reshuffling that has the, the potential to have uh, these reverberating consequences that will last a lot longer than the events that triggered them themselves. I think that's an, an excellent way to get started. And I think that leads us very uh, nicely to the second question, which is, you know, do you think that the war is hurting or helping the clean energy transition? You know, we talked about oil, we talked about reshuffling of oil. But you know, this episode is indeed about the new a possible paradigm shift in a way. So in response to Russia's invasion, for example, uh, the European Union has accelerated its energy independence timeline through the Repower EU plan, which mandates quick approvals of clean power generation. Are there any important risks for the bloc in ramping up renewables and elsewhere in the world for uh, wanting to pursue renewables at a, at a faster pace? Yeah, this is a spectacular point here. And we may have uh, finally this symbiosis, if you will, of the three elements here. So energy security, this kind of nebulous term that a lot of politicians and policymakers have used before, has really traditionally been about energy security as about affordability and availability. You got to have basically cheap supplies and abundant supplies of energy. And that's pretty much good enough. Now we may have a third one, the environmental element, that paradigm shift you're referring to, which yes, is very much underway. The energy transition is absolutely in the process of taking place. There's still a long way to go, no doubt, but a lot of stuff has already also happened as well. We now have now uh, a uh, view of energy security given the invasion of Ukraine and now this strife that European households and industries are under a view of energy security that is now all three. It is about affordability, it's about availability, and it's also about the environmental costs, the environmental impacts of the energy we consume. All of this is good, guys. Now, does this actually accelerate, uh, does this invasion and this energy crisis actually accelerate the energy transition? Yes, in Europe, it absolutely does. Now you're saying, Scott, though, I'm seeing stories about revamping coal and we're pushing back retirements and coal's back all the time. That's going to be temporary. That's going to be a transient uh, phenomenon. Everywhere in the Western world, North America included, you're seeing coal as being gradually phased out. It is a going to be here it's going to stay away it's going to stay a, a little bit longer but uh it's on the way out the question though was what was going to fill that gap that bridge if you will between a fully renewable future or a renewable dominant future and uh the fossil fuel dependence we have now so really the globe uh the the global economy is running on about 80 percent fossil fuels on a daily basis right that number will come down over time but in between there was supposed to be a large role 
for natural gas. Natural gas is cleaner than coal, but yes, it's still a fossil fuel. Natural gas, though, is also a key part of the Putin regime and the Russian economy. Now, without that relationship between Russian natural gas and European consumers, is this now in some ways accelerating the push in Europe to renewables? And the answer is yes. They're in some ways going to jump ahead. They're, you mentioned various policies that the European Union has unveiled. And really every major economy now is talking big time about renewables and they're fusing it with probably geopolitical competition, China looking at you, and of course, industrial revamping, industrial restructuring. The Biden administration came out with their Inflation Reduction Act. Guys, it has nothing to do with inflation or reducing inflation. It has everything to do with green energy and it has everything to do with competing with China. There, and China has its own industrial policies on this front, green and greenifying industry, if you will, is now very much the name of the game. We are fully going forward with this. Batteries, electric vehicles, wind turbines, solar panels. This is a fast unfolding, but still somewhat early stages of a big, big transformation that's going to take many decades to unfold. That's incredible to hear, especially as a young person myself. But uh, I just wanted to ask a follow-up. You mentioned kind of the third pillar of environmental cleanliness that has been added on to affordability and availability for energy security. Would we consider a fourth pillar being the source where you get your energy from? For example, you know, the the best example being Germany and Russia. Um, Germany was incredibly reliant on Russian energy pre-2022, pre-the-invasion. And it was because of that dependence that in many ways, uh, Germany while they have made tremendously impressive goals to uh, lower their dependence on Russian energy, it's still quite a challenge for them. So would you consider, uh, you know, the the geopolitical relationship with the country from whom you're getting your energy from being part of that equation of uh, energy security? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that this is, whether it gets lumped into this three pillar framework or not, in some ways, may or may not, right? The, the framework can be can be helpful, but there absolutely now is a, a, a clear and pressing geopolitical element here that needs to be, uh, that needs to be addressed, right? This very clear recognition that the sale of energy from Russia to Europe and to other parts of the world, but to Europe in particular, is actually helping to destabilize Europe. This is now a very stark and clear dynamic. And another reason why this this energy transition, in particular in Europe, reducing this import dependence is more pressing than ever. Do we go back and talk very briefly about how this relationship actually evolved? We have in many ways, the warnings of various US administrations and US presidents talking about, guys, Europeans, you don't actually want to get hooked on, in particular, Siberian natural gas. You don't want to get hooked on European, uh, on, on, on Russian energy exports for precisely this reason, that at some point, 
they could be converted into this geopolitical weapon, which is exactly what we see these days. There is nothing very uh, sophisticated about what uh, the Putin regime is trying to do. It's very much trying to use this energy weapon as a source of power and as a source of division among Europeans. And they do this, for example, by either cutting off exports to particular European countries, by giving it to other European countries for cheap, maybe having somewhere in between for some other European countries, trying to divide and rule European countries so that they stop supporting the Ukrainian resistance. It's a very straightforward relationship. This, however, was in many ways kind of the nightmarish outcome of a relationship that was supposed to be a quote-unquote bridge for peace. That natural gas was supposed to connect Russia across the, uh, the Iron Curtain, remember that guys, during the Cold War, across the Iron Curtain and to of course feed European industries, in particular German industries. This was supposed to be a bridge for peace and actually it's really become a source of weakness for the Europeans, a source of power for the Russians, and really a, a stark example of trade can really bring countries together sometimes, but it can also actually heighten tensions uh, and become a source of, of problems later on. But this is where we are now. This relationship built over many decades, the sale of gas in particular from Russia to Europe, was it's it's never coming back guys it it took many many decades to build quite literally build all the infrastructure but also to build the trust and that that relationship of of a consumer and a supplier and we're going to keep politics out of this guys that's that's gone forever uh russia will never be selling uh <laughs> gas or really any major export uh any ed energy exports to to europe ever again talk about killing your client base guys yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think, uh, as you know, humans know, it's a lot easier to rebuild a road than it is to rebuild trust, for sure. You know, pivoting away uh, from the United States, Russia, the West, Europe, um, and to uh, a part of the world that is often neglected in these conversations is the global South. Um, you know, with the war in Ukraine, mm -hmm. we have seen countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America, you know, cut their natural gas, gas prices, yes, but in the process resulting in price-related electricity out outages, increased prices for energy, uh, that doesn't even consider the question of food security in the global south as well. So the question is, does the, does the green energy transition advantage these countries? And how realistic is transition there? And how does that question of food security fit with the energy transition? Yeah, this is a great one. And it, you're absolutely right. It is often uh, neglected. Uh, whenever we have an energy crisis, uh, the countries that are most devastated and most impacted by this are overwhelmingly low-income countries and middle-income countries. The Global South is always kind of taking a beating with this and, and often neglected. One for the energy you mentioned and also for the food you mentioned. These parts are uh, very much uh, interconnected. We have now a lot of variation in this area here, a lot of differences depending on really the country you're talking about. Uh, energy systems are very, very path dependent. Countries tend to go down a path and then they kind of end up on it for a long, long time and they end up kind of maybe hooked on a particular energy system for a long, long time. Now, broadly speaking, in Asia, your big energy consumers have, maybe they were previously, 
uh, big importers of, say, liquefied natural gas. Asia buys about uh, uh, 75% or so of all liquefied natural gas. So it's very much a, a home uh, for a, a big consumption home for, for LNG. Now LNG went crazy with prices because of the war and all of this other stuff. So now some of them were locked into what we call long-term contracts. So they had prices fixed, they were okay, uh, but it also was a bit of a sign of warning for them. Like maybe we have to be careful about how dependent we are on liquefied natural gas imports. That of course meant probably going back to ex-girlfriends and ex-girlfriends in this case meant more coal, right? Ramping up coal, maybe even building new coal capacity. China, I'm looking at you. That has become a big problem, right? Many of these countries in Asia are either fast growing, already have big economies, already probably have some energy security issues, and coal is kind of a nice, safe, warm blanket for them. Terrible for us, terrible for the uh, uh, environment. Uh, so there's a problem here. Some of them have also said, okay, here's a cool way to uh, finally, maybe a, a way to ramp up our renewable buildouts. And by the way, on this topic, all of the above, China is doing all of these, right? It is both increasing coal capacity, it is both increasing LNG imports, it's also vastly increasing its renewable build-out uh, wind, but especially solar, which makes it just such a contradiction wrapped in enigma, wrapped in all of the other things at the same time, right? We're seeing a lot of variation here, but that does raise a bigger question of, if these countries then maybe do accelerate their energy transitions or maybe hold it back as we see with the, the the return to coal is this are we entering maybe into a new geopolitical and interstate relationships where whereas oil and gas and, and oil especially was a global commodity and transferred throughout the world that hundred millions of hundred million of barrels a day shipped around and refined around and there was relationships deep relationships between countries and companies is renewables going to be a different story? Is the geopolitics of renewables going to be different in part because renewables often are locally generated? The sun in your country, the wind in your country. Uh, this, is this going to be a different story, a less energy, um, a less interdependent relationship? Big questions on that, guys. A lot of people are debating that one. I don't have a clear answer just yet. We're still in the early stages. Yeah, that's something I, I didn't even think about. You know, you can you can make uh, produce a barrel of oil and physically transport that barrel of oil anywhere in the world. But if you are producing electricity from a hydroelectric dam, uh, you can transport that energy. It, it is possible, but it's a, it's very expensive. And it's it's, uh, you know, I doubt how how scale upable a mass uh transportation of renewable energy is so that is a fascinating idea with regards to the ability for renewables to to have a much more local impact now there is an international element here though which is the manufacturing process who is building your solar pv modules your panels who's building your wind turbines or the many parts that go into a wind turbine there we do have a interstate and internationally globalization story or a deglobalization story depending on tariffs and trade wars and these industrial policies this is really where this this uh 
this shift is taking place, you're seeing a, a lot more attention from governments, big governments in particular, saying we want a piece of that. Now, China in many ways has dominated in these various projects. Basically, what, about 95% of your solar panels are coming out of China uh, or some Chinese firm in maybe a, a Southeast Asian country and the like, wind turbines, they dominate about half of that, uh, th that manufacturing. Those critical minerals you're hearing about in uh, newspapers and podcasts, the minerals that are going into these different types of uh, kind of high tech, digital, low carbon technologies, China dominates there too, guys. We're now starting to see Western governments kind of push back and say, we want a piece as well. We also want to compete in this space. Uh, so it's now from that commodity story of getting the oil out of the ground and who has the oil and refining the oil and transporting. Now it's more a processing, a manufacturing story. And there is significant competition going on right here. And this is very much going to be the story going forward, I think. Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. And, you know, let's I think the, the time has come now to talk about China uh, explicitly. Uh, China has had a, a big impact, indirect impact, I would say, on this conflict. Uh, it, it remains, you know, the biggest economy that has yet to denounce the war in Ukraine. They have, uh, they have maintained, uh, you know, I don't want to use the term, but I'll use it anyways, the strategic ambiguity of their relationship with, with Russia. And the question of energy is, is incredibly important for China. And the question of energy for China is important for the rest of the world with how China gets its energy. So are we seeing China increase its investment in renewables? Or is Beijing searching for uh, short term growth and doubling down on traditional energy sources? Or is it a bit of both? It's all of the above and many other things as well. <laughs> when you talk about China and whether it's China-Russia relations or China and its energy relations or its view of uh, you know, global energy, there are a lot of things going on and we have to be careful about simplifying here. It is doing many, many things at once. The geopolitical or diplomatic relationship it has with Russia is maybe it's soured a bit. It's very difficult to get real actual information when it comes to this stuff. Uh, we're often uh, trying to kind of uh, parse through tea leaf reading and, and, and diplomatic statements from their government. Uh, we knew, do know, of course, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have this, uh, well, they have a bromance, guys. They've met over 30 plus times. They are clearly, they clearly like each other, right? <laughs> Maybe uh, for various reasons, they, they see uh, eye to eye on a bunch of issues and they do see eye to eye on a bunch of issues, whether it's NATO expansion or US imperialism or uh, this shift to multipolarity in the international system. There is a lot of symbiosis in the way the Chinese and Russian regimes look at the world. But we also have to be frank about this. The Russian economy is vastly smaller than the Chinese one, right? It's basically the, uh, the same size of uh, the GDP as Jiangsu province. Uh, you know, one singular province in, in China is uh, basically the same, uh, has the same economic output as all of Russia. Russia accounts for about 2% of China's overall trade. It is a minor trading partner. This is overall a strategic relationship. It's a military relationship, it's a geopolitical relationship, it is of course an energy relationship as well. China has deep energy investments in Russia with pipelines and various infrastructure and contracts. And for that reason, you see why they've 
the Chinese uh, government has more or less been pretty mum on the Ukrainian invasion, right? But they're not alone. If we look at much of the global south, include, including the BRICS, remember those guys, the BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, actually all of them have really said nothing too negative about the invasion. Maybe they don't necessarily openly support Russia, but they certainly are not um, providing any help for the Ukrainians or even denouncing Russia. So you have then in the global south and in particular the you know the 13 of the g20 right that that new component that new grouping well all of them are basically at worst neutral on the the invasion uh, and uh, maybe at worst uh, or would this be at worst uh, supportive of the russian regime so so china is not alone when it comes to uh, really not doing much in in terms of punishing or or castigating the russian regime now, on the other hand, the Chinese also know their biggest trading partners are Western countries or Western allies. Their biggest technology trading partners are Western allies. Now, that relationship is changing, of course, as we know, with semiconductors. And they're terrified, of course, of any type of secondary sanctions. Chinese companies do not want to get slapped with any of these financial sanctions that are uh, connected to, to, to punishing Russia. So they're being very, very careful about really playing the middle, right? Staying on the fence, putting out a statement here or there, not actively supporting Russia in its invasion of Ukraine or its war efforts, uh, but also not constraining the Russians in any way either, right? Being, you know, as you said, strategic ambiguity here, playing that middle road. Yeah, that's that's incredibly fascinating. And there's, it's an advantage and simultaneously a disadvantage for China with how much more connected the Chinese economy is to global markets. You know, the Russian economy was, you know, had a, had a fair amount of connection with global markets and European markets, but nowhere near as much as the Chinese economy is. So yeah, how, how to what extent the, the Chinese economy is connected. So I think neither you or I can, can answer uh, what will happen uh, five to 10 years uh, down the road. But I do think that, you know, we we both we both think that China is going to be one of the countries to watch when all of this is is said and done. And and I think China will continue to be a, a really fascinating component in the, the global energy puzzle. Without question, all of the above. So and I think we want to emphasize that interrelated geopolitical, environmental, energy, economic. There are so many things that are overlapping here uh, and very tough to parse out. Where is China on the energy transition? This country obviously is crucial because it's the biggest carbon emitter in the world, but it's also in many ways the global leader in this renewable charge as the manufacturer, the home to so many of these technologies and the, obviously the biggest electric vehicle market in the world currently and likely going forward as well. There are so many things happening in China when it comes to this, uh, while at the same time, yes, being still the world's biggest coal producer, being still the world's biggest coal consumer, being still a country that is in many ways maybe an impediment to to the energy transition, it's also a major accelerator. And I think we want to embrace that complexity, that contradiction. This is going to be 
China is, is absolutely crucial to any calculus, geopolitical or environmental or energy related uh, going forward. And also, yes, being the world's largest oil importer as well, China. So many things going on with this. Being a clean energy accelerant and being a, a clean energy impediment, those are not mutually exclusive. To, to wrap things up and bringing it back to our original topic, which is, you know, assuming the war ends sooner rather than later, we all hope for that. Um, and along not only does the war end, but the many crises that have resulted from it end as well. Do you think this accelerated rhetoric, discourse, and move away from fossil fuels will continue? Or, you know, would the world go back to a kind of pre-war notion of the energy transition? You know, in other words, do you think these changes in the discourse regarding energy transition, are they permanent? Or will things revert back to business as usual? No, this is a great point, Antoine. And I, I, again, in this broader embracing of the sheer, almost mind-boggling complexity of this topic, it's going to really be all of the above. We have a discourse in particular that is very environmentally focused. Uh, or broadly speaking, this ESG movement environment, social and governments, that's here to stay. That is very strong. Uh, it's also very vague and nebulous and maybe a tad toothless, but it is on the minds of many people, including, including corporate boardrooms. That is here to stay. Uh, we have various targets that governments have rolled out, net zero of various forms, different peaking emissions and then reducing emissions. Those targets and the plans that are being unfolded from those are here to stay as well. There is a wide range of actions being done on the micro and the macro level companies doing this and that countries doing this and that that is all going to unfold. But we are still ultimately locked into a very carbon intensive global economy, one that is dependent on largely dependent on fossil fuels are living habits and our energy system and our international system more broadly speaking this is all very very carbon intensive and very quickly you can look at something like lisa scott like what about the biggest companies in the world you say the top 20 or so companies in the world by market cap by revenue are about 10 of them are oil companies another five or so of them are automakers that means internal combustion engines for now at least and then you have global retailers like Amazon and everyday low prices, Walmart, that are, of course, shipping stuff all the way across the seas. And then you have electronics companies like Apple or Samsung that are plastic based. This every company on this top list basically is somehow oil focused, if not fossil fuel dependent. Right. It doesn't mean we can't get away from that and that can't change. But we have incredibly dense power structures that are very much resistant to this and very much uh, kind of getting in the way. So until we really fundamentally transform some of those uh, very, you know, very basic forms of how we source energy and transport energy and ultimately store energy, a lot of this is going to stay in the rhetorical and discourse realm. I hate to say it. Well, 
thank you so much for joining us. While this is like a, a huge topic, I think there's a bit of headway was done in this conversation just to to get our listeners more involved and more interested in something that is going to become more and more important as the years go on. So Professor McKnight, again, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Antoine, for having me. Love the program and, uh, you know, keep, keep up the good work. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Once again, that was Professor Scott McKnight from the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Our next speaker is Hlip Michno, a junior professional in the fields of external relations and energy transition. He is currently working in Brussels for European institutions to promote policies towards energy transformation and climate neutrality, as well as Ukraine's integration into the European Union. Recently, he represented Ukraine as European Climate Pact ambassador during high-level youth policy dialogues with Vice President of the European Commission for the European Green Deal and Commissioner for the Environment. Today, he explores Ukraine's energy transition through the prism of Russia's invasion with a focus on the constant shelling of Ukraine's energy infrastructure, plans for EU integration, and post-war reconstruction. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm very glad to have you. You are a young professional with quite the list of achievements. You seem to be quite young. I believe we might be around the same age. Can you tell me and our audience what motivated you to get involved in energy politics and what is it that you do at the European Commissioner for the Environment as a young professional? Maria, thank you very much for inviting me, first of all. Indeed, it's a great opportunity for me to express gratitude to all Canadian people, our great friends, for their support for Ukraine. I am very well aware that University of Toronto, for instance, is welcoming Ukrainian students and faculty amid ongoing war. A friend in need is a friend indeed, however, in the situation of such a brutal, full-fledged military aggression of Russia against the sovereign nation just in the middle of Europe in the 21st century, Ukraine is fighting not only for its freedom and fair future development, but for our common principles of human rights, equity and rule of law. So moving on to our topic, uh, indeed, I am a junior professional with specific focus uh, of professional and academic interest on the policy, the energy transformation, I would say. And uh, I believe that our generation has the widest opportunities to obtain knowledge and data from a huge number of sources than even before, thanks to technological developments. So it makes perfect sense that we should be increasingly trusted and responsible for bringing about real productive change from the older generation, even starting with small projects, but uh, be as useful as possible to society where you are right now. So, and my motivation in this respect is that the transition to the use of clean technologies, clean tech, in particular in the energy sector, opens completely new uh, opportunities, not only in the direction of climate neutrality from our day-to-day -day, uh, activities to a large commercial ones, in order to deal with the current uh, sharp climate change, especially to avoid extreme weather patterns, but 
also a new stage of societal and industrial development. That is because renewable energy is available in one or another form in mostly any location in the world, like solar, wind, hydro, where appropriate uh, geothermal, tidal, and other types of power. Uh, even waste, uh, which is available anywhere, obviously, if used in a proper ecological manner, could be a source for power generation. Yes, let's be frank and clear, we still need uh, raw materials for such types uh, of power generation and uh, conservation. However, rather in the much smaller quantities and with possibility to reuse them. On another side, we have fossil fuels, which are concentrated in specific regions, cause climate problems for us change in weather conditions and uh, quite usually under control of uncertain players or even clear terrorists, killers as current Russia's regime, which fuels its military machine thanks to revenues from the sale of oil and gas. It is indeed of my huge opportunity to contribute to the Climate Pact, or which is, let's say, a social part of the U European Union's Green Deal, both strategy and action plan to transform Europe into the first climate-neutral continent, no, no later than 2050, which means that all European partners, especially trade ones in this sense, should have uh, net zero greenhouse gas emissions as well due to indirect, indirect emissions. So every single step in any supply chain of goods and services consumed in, in the EU should be taken into account, even if it delivered from another countries. It is a challenge, I should say, uh, and the uh, Department for Climate Action of European Commission is responsible for these enormous efforts. Uh, main reason of each is to ensure that uh, national, local and regional leaders, business executives, industry stakeholders, citizens, all People are very well informed about the environmental, economic, financial, taking into account uh, European Union's just transition mechanism as well, and political benefits, of course, uh, of the Green Deal. Moreover, in this context, we can argue about democratizing effect uh, uh, of renewable energy. As far as smaller cities, municipalities could benefit the most in terms of new opportunities in becoming more self-energy resource sufficient and in general more resilient towards various risks for its own better sustainable economic development for the sake of its for its residents, so very specific people, and in terms of uh, overpopulation of large cities, it becoming increasingly difficult to meet and manage citizen needs and ensure a high level of life quality. And currently, I'm also pursuing a traineeship at the European Committee of the Regions, official uh, body of the EU, quite unique in global sense, 
which acts as an assembly for European cities, communities, municipalities, for better coordination and representation the local voice at the all European level in order not to leave anyone behind. For me, it is an extraordinary experience in realizing the importance of local territories where deployment of renewables is taking place. I was pleased to contribute to the committee's opinion on boosting subnational climate diplomacy last October for the attention of the European Commission and European Parliament while drafting and deciding on a new laws. So that's briefly about my motivation. That sounds wonderful. And I am so inspired by you to see such a young professional so inspired and motivated to contribute to such an important goal. And I'm very pleased that you've had the opportunity to work so hard with European institutions. I believe that more minds like you are needed in this regard. But obviously, because you've spent so much time working towards this goal of energy transition, naturally, the topic of Russia's war in Ukraine has, I imagine, been discussed in these institutions in a large extent. And um, from researching you before the interview and following your work, I noticed that during your time in these European institutions, you have spoken numerous times about the environmental impacts that Russia's war in Ukraine has had in Ukraine specifically, but also in the European Union in large, in the environmental sense. So could you tell our audience about the extent of the environmental damage done in Ukraine and its water impacts to Europe and to the world due to Russia's invasion? You are so right. It is unprecedentedly important to raise such a question, especially right now. Russia has already caused damage to more than around half of all Ukrainian ecosystems. As far as military strikes, industrial facilities, including oil refineries, storages, gas and coal facilities as well, uh, economically critical and civil infrastructure like uh, simple residential buildings, uh, uh, on ongoing, mostly daily, weekly basis, using, uh, let's not forget about Iranian drone technologies and uh, Belarusian military, military infrastructure like air force uh, bases. And as a consequence, toxic uh, substances spread in rivers, soils and atmosphere in the middle of European continent. Obviously, such pollution knows no borders and spreads further. Uh, furthermore, uh, the largest European uh, nuclear power plant uh, in Zaporizhia is uh, still being captured by Russian forces. Military equipment and explosives have been brought into the premises of the station. So it's really still very difficult to believe in that but 
it is already creates an emergency situation and enormous risk for the whole world, not only Europeans, Canadians, but Russians itself, of course. So this situation is on the edge of disaster, to be frank, due to constant shelling by Russians, uh, especially uh, its power lines and transformers as well as uh, torture of staff. So this is so irresponsible and uh, simply simply crazy, to be frank. Thank you. I fully agree with you. I think it's irresponsible, it's unconceivable, and it will definitely have lasting impacts in Ukraine and in the world as a large. And I believe that it's an aspect that is often overlooked correct? When we think about an invasion and we think about war, we think about the immediate consequences and their destruction, but it seems like the environment is an element that is not considered enough and the environmental consequences, but young professionals like you and people that are concerned about the environment with reason are devoting more attention and raising alarm about the consequences that a war can have for everybody. It's not just limited to Ukraine. It's not just limited to Europe. But on that note, prior to the war, and I'm referring to prior to February 24th, 2022, but also prior to the annexation of Crimea in 2014, let's not forget that Russia's assault in Ukraine started way before the invasion in February of 2022. Could you tell me whether Ukraine was moving or considering towards cleaner energy? If so, what were the factors that were motivating this switch? And if Ukraine was not considering moving towards cleaner energy, what were some of the challenges that were preventing Ukraine from this transition prior to Russian invasion? Sure, sure. Before the start of the war, Ukraine managed to achieve a share of 15, 17 approximately percentage of renewables in the energy mix. It was possible due to several factors from the general trend of the Green Deal in the neighboring countries, in the European Union. The need to provide alternative sources to replace Russian energy sources. That's true, that's true. Such policy interventions as a feed-in tariff, for instance. By the way, exactly two years ago, it was already attractive to invest in green generation, even for their own consumption of enterprises without any subsidies. It's important to understand. So even in Ukraine, and considering... Uh, here increasingly reduced uh, cost of renewables equipment to to a personal level i should say when people wanted to become energy independent from all kinds of risks you know uh, and installed solar panels on their roofs of uh, both private and uh, large buildings uh, residential buildings and also to become a prosumer, you know, to provide a part of generated electricity to the general network and thus even covering some part of their utility costs. So despite financial situation, you know, despite uh, on, ongoing uh, war with Russia, because it started uh, 
uh, actually in uh, to, uh, 2014. Yeah, right, and uh, it's only one year of a full-fledged military aggression, but still, and uh, COVID pandemic as, as well, it was a huge factor. But still, we see that despite all these ne- negative developments, we have concrete results, I should say. And nevertheless, uh, Ukrainian energy companies continue to deploy new uh, renewable energy facilities. Uh, The latest example, uh, wind uh, plant, was just constructed uh, 60 kilometers from the front line. Can you imagine in Mykolaiv region, not far from the uh, Black Sea? So while Russia strikes on uh, energy facilities, uh, it is a matter of survival for Ukrainians not business as usual. And this case was even featured in the Washington Post uh, several days ago. I fully think that it's impressive that a wind plant was just constructed 60 kilometers away from the front line. But I'm also not impressed. It shows just how resilient Ukrainians are. And as you rightfully mentioned, that this war is not just about, and this invasion is not just about winning over Russia. And it's not about business as usual. It's about survival. And I think that the resilience of the Ukrainian people and their the willingness to show that they are ready to be resilient against Russian invasion shows also a very important issue, which is that Ukraine is ready to be integrated into Europe, which I know is an issue that you also discuss a lot in your work. Now, I wanted to touch on this concept of clean energy infrastructure in Ukraine during the war. During one of its many assaults to the Kharkiv Oblast in Ukraine, Russia targeted and bombed a solar plant. And following this, you noted that Russia is aware and recognizes the threat of an energy transition. As we know, Russia has exploited its monopoly on global oil, gas, and coal to extort countries in the European Union and other regions of the world to support its assault in Ukraine. Do you think that in light of this willingness of Europe and the rest of the world to transition to cleaner energy, do you think that Russia could retaliate against the West in the face of this accelerated transition? And if so, How would Russia retaliate and what steps could we take to counter this retaliation? Indeed, indeed, very well emphasized by you. Important to understand here that uh, each of missile strike, especially if we are talking about launches of more modern prototypes, cost millions of dollars, millions. Therefore, each target of fire should be quite well prepared and planned. This is not the only one example in Kharkiv, I should say, because solar and wind plants in the south and east of Ukraine are being under fire by by constant shellings or even just simply looted by, by their soldiers, like uh, everything else <laughs> on the temporary occupied territories. So for Russia, the energy transition is a uh, complete 
game changer, since uh, their budget depends to a greater extent precisely on the simple extraction of oil, gas, and uh, its export, not on high technologies or modern sectors of the economy or services. Therefore, this global process is not in their interest, obviously. That is why the West have to accelerate the transition by investing, first of all, more in clean tech, uh, increasing its own energy efficiency, in, in, in other words, use the, their available resources in the most efficient way and uh, developing hydrogen technology then can help decarbonize so-called hard-to-abate sectors like steel and aluminium production, chemical industry or agriculture. As for Europe, the European Commission proposed exactly for this uh, reasons the repower EU plan to abandon uh, Russian energy resources in a in a full-fledged manner by 2027 however even uh, for today for one year uh, we have already quite good results so according uh, with the latest uh, data from International Energy Agency we have 40% less Russian oil and gas revenues, and especially because of less share of Russia in the EU gas demand. Be before the war started, it was about 40%. Right now, Europe depends on Russian uh, energy sources less than 10%. So it's quite, quite uh, good achievement already, but still we need much more success. And with regard to deployment of renewables for this year, it's 40% more solar and wind plants, for instance. And still what is important to underline that uh, despite all the needs to diversify its uh, energy export uh, European Union's GSG emissions uh, for this year is less for 2.5%. So I should say because of different thoughts and uh, such a complicated situation, we should say that the European Union has made important progress uh, across a range of key energy and climate indicators uh, this year. Yeah, I believe you're right. And I think that when it comes to Russian monopolization of global energy, right, it's about depriving from Russia the ability to continue to extort and exploit the world with this monopoly. And mm -hmm. I agree with you in what you said that it is about Europe setting the example of like moving away from this dependency right. and on relying on cleaner sources and on relying on themselves and i think that it just goes on to show just how important ukraine plays a role in this transition i think that the invasion of russia has highlighted that russia was never a dependable partner and it shows that the need to move away from it not only in europe but in other regions like the global south eventually is key in reducing the ability of Russia to keep extorting other countries. But on that note, while the war continues, unfortunately, 
in the West, we are quite hopeful that the victory is Ukrainian. And we are already talking about Ukrainian reconstruction and economic recovery. The Ukrainian government, as a matter of fact, already has a plan for reconstruction on one of its websites. And the Ukrainian government has prioritized the following projects as part of reconstruction. It's reconstruction of a clean and protected environment and energy independence and the green course. Could you tell me how Ukraine is planning on prioritizing these two projects? Because although the Ukrainian resistance and the country as a whole has demonstrated its willingness to transition and it's demonstrated interest and it's demonstrated resilience, we cannot ignore that reconstruction is going to be a long arduous process. So could you just tell me how Ukraine is planning on prioritizing this part of energy transition in its recovery program and how the European Union might be supporting Ukraine in this sense? Well, uh, Ukrainians understand that we will remain the eastern flank of the EU and NATO, which we de facto are now, but not yet the Euro full-fledged member. Although we have the status of candidate country for EU membership, as you mentioned before, and we are making all the necessary steps, uh, reforms to make this possible, even despite uh, the war. Emergency aid is already being provided and uh, reconstruction of those recently liberated territories is a priority, which actually I should say 40% of recently liberated territories, if compared with those which were uh, captured as of February last year. So not to forget about Crimea, Donetsk and Luhansk, of course. So and... It is quite a good result, I should say, taking into account uh, the asymmetric character of uh, the present war. However, we need to uh, transform the existing assistance into a win-win partnership between Ukraine and Western countries, but not limited to, and be ready with uh, specific funds not just to rebuild, but to invest in a qualitatively new modern economy of Ukraine based on the best available green and digital practices. I think that's the perfect note to end. It's definitely about creating a win-win partnership for Ukraine and for the European Union and one that is going to be long-lasting. We want to see Ukraine fully integrated into the European Union. Us in Canada want to do more businesses with Ukraine. We want to be more proactive in the way that we approach our bilateral diplomacy with Ukraine following the war. I think that the lessons uh, from the invasion have been humongous and very admirable on the Ukrainian side. Um, so thank you so much for joining me to discuss this very important topic and shedding light on an aspect that is oftentimes ignored when we talk about conventional warfare. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And of course, thank you for such a fruitful discussion. Dziakuju and all the best. Once again, that was Hip Mignon shedding light on the issue of energy transition from an Ukrainian perspective. Thank you for tuning in to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. 
That wraps up our episode for this week. Thank you to our guests, Professor Winfield, Professor Scott McKnight, and Chip Michno for joining us with their insight and expertise on the topic of energy transition in the wake of Russia's war against Ukraine. Today's show was produced by myself, Marie Asensio, and Antoine Fougère-Ramsouche. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and review us from wherever you're listening. Please remember that the views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed part of the show, or are interested in other public policy and world affairs topics, be sure to check our podcast episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net. You can also find us on your regular streaming platforms on Spotify and Apple Music. Make sure to check our Twitter at beyond underscore headlines, that is B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines, and by following us on Instagram and Facebook at Beyond the Headlines. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves. See you next week.